May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. As Pastor Carl has mentioned, today we uh, continue setting the stage for Christmas, today looking at Elizabeth. Elizabeth is so intertwined with her husband Zachariah's account and her better-known cousin, Mary, that it's a little difficult to, to ferret some things out about her. So let's go backstage again, as uh, Pastor Sean said last week, to see her in context here and also uh, in context of the Old Testament. The setting, both Zechariah and Elizabeth, we heard, are from priestly heritage. Zechariah, a descendant from Abijah. Elizabeth, a descendant of Aaron. Both of them are described as righteous before God. That's a word of what we call justification. It doesn't mean, oh, they're so good that God finally loved them. It means that God has declared them forgiven and holy, and they are walking in that grace of God in their lives. They are only two other people in St. Luke's Gospel that are called righteous. The first is Simeon, the older man who welcomes our baby Jesus when he is brought into the temple. And the only other one is Joseph of Arimathea who provided a tomb for our Lord after his death. And so they're walking in pretty good company. But with that, there are few surprises left for us who know the story. Last week, Zechariah doubted the angel's message, and so he was struck and was mute until John was born. In today's lesson, he goes home to Elizabeth, and she conceives and is going to have a child. John the Baptist. She remains hidden for five months until her cousin Mary comes to her, and that's the first time that publicly her blessed state is seen as the mother of the one who would proclaim, Jesus is here. Behold the Lamb of God. So far, so, uh, so familiar. There is a, a tendency for us, as we go through Advent Christmas rituals once again, either here or in our home, as we put the favorite decoration in the corner or on the tree, it's kind of too easy to have that become ho-hum. Where's the surprise in it? This last week, uh, Dr. Da Dale Meyer, who just retired as president of our seminary in St. Louis, wrote a blog and he, he called this uh, Advent for Dummies. We can do it. We can kind of work our way through it. But that Christmas message, Advent Christmas message, has to come home to us again so we understand this, this Lord Jesus came because, as Paul tells us, we are dead in trespasses and sin. He came to save this world and to save each one of us. And so there's, 
there's more here, much more. Let's look at some of this. The account that was read last week in this is full of Old Testament allusions. Pastor Carl uh, alluded to John the Baptist as a baby jumping or the word is leaping in Elizabeth's womb. The same word for leap in the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint and it was Hebrew was translated into Greek about the third century BC. But the word leap there is the same Greek word as is used in the Septuagint of Jacob and Esau in Rebekah's womb. There it's indicating that the firstborn Esau would serve the secondborn Jacob. Throws another light on Elizabeth and Mary. John, who would be born before our Lord, would serve our Lord. As he said later on in testimony, I'm not worthy even to untie the sandals that he's wearing. When Jacob's wife, Rachel, finally conceived and bore Joseph in Genesis 30:23, she said, the Lord has taken away my reproach. The very words Elizabeth said. And the announcement about John's birth that began with Zechariah and Elizabeth ends with Elizabeth alone and the simple statement that she conceived John, recalling Elkanah, Elkanah and Hannah. Hannah, who was older, who had not conceived, and finally bore the son Samuel, the prophet at the time of King Saul and David. And so that's joined. And when Mary goes to the hill country, to the house of Elizabeth, Elizabeth exclaims with a loud cry. Again, the same Greek word from the Septuagint, when I'm missing something here. The same Greek word from the Septuagint when in 2 Samuel 6:12, David sees the Ark of the Covenant and expresses with a loud cry. The Ark of the Covenant was a physical marker of God's presence. And so God present in Jesus in Mary's womb receives that exclamation from, from Elizabeth. So the coming births of John and Jesus are the fulfillment of centuries of promise. And that's all wrapped up in this account here. We we rejoice when in a normal year, probably not, maybe not this year, can gather around our Christmas table or around the Christmas tree with two, maybe three generations, grandparent, parents, and children. Once in a while, I've called on some people who said, my great-grandson was there this time. But this account takes us back to centuries of God's promise and faithfulness to that promise. Back to the time 
when Adam and Eve first fell into sin and a Savior was promised, all the way through all the prophecies of the Old Testament. So our Advent and Christmas celebrations are culminations of God's working and faithfulness for centuries. So that adds a spring to our step and to our celebration. We're familiar with the events recorded here. And today you listen to a familiar account again, we did. But Elizabeth does not just take Mary's visit as, a, as a, uh, another family visit. She responds, Why is this granted me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? That's another Old Testament allusion in, in 2 Samuel 6, 9, as the Ark of the Covenant is carried up the hill to the house of Obed-Edom, David says those same words only in that, why is it granted me that the Ark of the Covenant has come to me? The symbol of God's presence there, this time the real presence of our Lord. So we hear all of this against the backdrop of Isaiah, Jeremiah, other prophets, Zechariah, the prophet, not the priest here, and Micah. Their prophecies preceding the, uh, the birth of our Lord are, may seem strange in our modern setting as we're attuned as last week again, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer was on TV. But there's a great expectation and a miracle here. Right here, I think we have the surprise. Several years ago, I read a book that I don't really remember the author of, but said something like this. If we were planning to save a world that not only is full of individual sinners, but that, that uh, it expounds itself in terms of the foolishness and stupidity and wickedness of humans and of nations, the very last thing he would do would be to send a baby born to a peasant girl in an out-of-the-way town on the edge of the Roman Empire. Given the dimensions of the earth's trauma, its suffering, the birth of Jesus that's announced in uh, today's gospel is unexpected, but it's a surprise. It leads us to again say, thank you, Lord. Otherwise, who would do it? Who would do it? The task for us would seem to be international councils or someone else, something else. But this is the work of a baby who comes from the back country of Galilee, a teacher, a savior, who drags his cross ultimately through the narrow streets of Jerusalem. He is something we did not expect, but something we can now as we know what the Old Testament says. And so, there it goes, it's getting slow. We ask, how is it that my Lord should come to me? Think of that miracle in a very practical way. 61 years ago, I told a young woman that I loved her. And three years later, we were married. 
And for 58 years now, we have shared for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. We've been together. You can't love someone from afar and show it. And that's exactly what, exactly what our Lord did by coming to earth. He came into our sin, into our sinful world. He came and shared his grace, his love. He taught and finally went to that cross and then resurrection for us. A man that comes for the Friday private communions uh, that I conduct here brought me a couple of weeks ago a copy of Thomas Aquinas's Imitation of Christ. And so this last week, he came and said, you know, I was reading this, and he quoted chapter and verse, but he said, it changed my perspective this morning. He said, love is not defined by feelings, but by fidelity. Faithful Jesus came. Faithful Jesus joins us when we are brought to the waters of baptism. Faithful Jesus comes to us as we share from the altar bread and wine and body and blood. He comes. That's the reason why our celebration, our looking forward toward Christmas is joyful and perhaps even would make us, I'm not going to try it, leap for joy. But one final comment. In the story of Zechariah and the end of the gospel, there's a frame, so to speak. Zechariah, when he left, came out of the Holy of Holies, was supposed to pronounce the ironic benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. We're familiar with that. But he could not. And so the people were dismissed. But at the end of the gospel, in chapter 24, verses 50 to 53, we read, Then Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. By God's blessing, that's what we do here. Praising God, blessing God. Coming again then in the next Advent uh, weeks and finally at Christmas, we'll be blessing God, praising God, even if it's virtually. His blessing and care be with us all. In his name, amen.